0: If you would, please take your Bibles and turn first to Isaiah chapter 50. Old Testament reading and New Testament reading. Here is a a chapter that certainly highlights the suffering servant, the obedience of the Messiah prophesied to us through through Isaiah's voice, inspiration of, of God the Spirit. And as we learned last Sunday evening, given even at this time through God the Son, who operates at all times as the prophet of the church, so even in the Old Testament, God the Son is, is giving the instruction to God's people, the Spirit carries it along, fills the mouth and the writing of the prophet. Uh, so this is a chapter that maybe is read less often. We, we tend to focus a lot on Isaiah 53, which really, you'd think in many ways, kind of the pinnacle of the Old Testament revelation that the Messiah, the Savior, will suffer. He will bear the sins of his people. Um, I wanted to read this chapter this morning to highlight that for us, to show us the way in which Christ fulfills uh, the suffering servant role. And we'll think uh, just a little bit about a couple of these verses specifically. Let's hear God's word as it's read in the midst of his people. We know the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. So give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, Isaiah chapter 50. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins, you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. And then we hear a description of the servant. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, And I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Amen. May God add the blessing to the reading, his blessing to the reading of his word. And then turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Our sermon text this morning. Last week, we considered the baptism of Jesus, how he accepts the role of Savior and suffering servant, and here, immediately after this, or connected to this at least, we read of the temptation of Jesus, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Once again, hear God's holy word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Here on the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan, you would be reading Acts 17 this morning or sometime today. That would be your assignment for today. And Acts 17, I read it a, a couple of days ago. Actually, I started my Bible reading plan. I have a new strategy. It started about December 26th to give myself a little bit of a cushion. And we'll see how that goes as the year goes on. I read it a couple of days ago. And a fascinating account, Paul in Athens. And he's there to teach about the Christ, Jesus being the Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament as we just considered from Isaiah chapter 50. And it says that there were philosophers there being in Athens, kind of the center of philosophical thoughts, people exploring the meaning of life and ideas, which is kind of the culture of Athens at that time. And it said some of the Epicureans and the Stoics were there listening to Paul and engaging with him. Epicureans, uh, life is temporary and basically seek all the pleasure that you can find. The only way that you find meaning and purpose, sort of seek your own pleasure. Whatever you think will please you, go and seek after that. Stoics, reject pleasure, reject all of those things, do away with your desires, put them away, and that is how you will achieve peace or some kind of, of blessedness or bliss as you put away desires. So they're very very active in very opposite ways. Uh, We live in an epicurean age, mostly, and uh, if you ever need evidence that that kind of approach to living, abundance, living according to your desires, living uh, according to, to seeking to satiate all of those desires, it doesn't grant happiness. All you need to do is look around. In the midst of our abundance, we are abounding in despair in the midst of all of our having, we are filled with more wanting. And so it may cross the mind of many to say, well, perhaps the Stoic message might be something that would sear into the hearts of those who have an abundance of things and yet are filled with emptiness. And so then you begin to look at the message of Christ and the message of of his kingdom. And you begin to say, well, maybe there's a Uh, Maybe Stoicism is wrapped up in all the things that, that Jesus says. Maybe that's the Christian answer to happiness, just sort of putting away all of your desires. Think with me about many of the calls of the gospel. What if you said to the people of this world, filled with an abundance and yet filled with desire, what if you told them that it's not the case that God is there to always give you what you want or what you desire, but rather we are called to submit to him and what he determines to give to us. What if you told them that rather than physical and outward comforts, we are called to first seek spiritual things? And that as we seek spiritual things, it can be spiritual health and life that sustains us in the midst of outward want. What if you told them that God is not there for you to leverage your own agenda, that he is not to be referenced as the inspiration for you to go your own way, Or that he's okay with however you live your life. People who would say, well, God and I have some kind of an agreement. What if you told them that God does not guarantee you will avoid suffering? In fact, if you follow Christ, you will be guaranteed to undergo suffering. And what if he told them that suffering is the path to glory? Is the Christian message simply Stoicism? Well, no. No. It's not Epicurean and it's not Stoic. Because none of these things, none of those things that are part of the Christian life, part of the, the Christian call of discipleship, those are not the things that satisfy. And it is indeed true that the Christian message is still one that is filled with satisfaction and joy and contentment and fulfillment. But it is Christ that satisfies. Putting away all of these things, are that is not what gives life. Christ gives life. And since he gives life, since he satisfies, that is what allows us to embrace suffering and to overcome temptation. The life that we have in Christ, the fulfillment that we have in Christ. So, this morning we're going to talk about a few things. First, Jesus willingly embraced suffering for you. Jesus willingly embraced suffering for you. Secondly, Jesus was victorious over temptation for us. Jesus was victorious over temptation for us. And finally, if you stand in Christ and if you live in him, you can embrace suffering and you can overcome temptation as well. First, Jesus willingly embraced suffering for you. This story is real. It really happened. Most uh, Bible scholars will say... Uh, today, who are not operating under a Christian paradigm, that this is uh, Matthew's imaginative embellishments. But the story was real, and we remind ourselves of that and all that it entails. It means that the devil is real. He's presented to us as a personal being, he presents himself to Jesus in whatever form. We can't be exactly sure. We read that uh, Jesus' humanity is real, he undergoes real. Temptations and his human experiences are real as well. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. We read in the book of Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. Jesus was really tempted. Now we understand that we have to uh, look at this in light of Jesus being both God and man, and there is indeed some mystery there, but he is really tempted. The visions that Jesus has or the experience are real but likely supernatural. How do they get to a place where they can see all the kingdoms of the earth? How do they get up to the top of the temple? There's a supernatural aspect to this certainly as well. And then finally, we understand that there's a connection to the baptism narrative here. Very clearly, Matthew is saying this is connected to Jesus' baptism. In Jesus' baptism, something that Jesus commits himself to is to suffer, to serve, and to save. The baptism entails all of that. He will be a suffering savior. He will serve sinners. And all of that will be put to the test. All of that will be challenged by the devil's temptations. Is he really going to follow through in suffering? Is he really going to follow through in being a servant? Is he really going to follow through in saving With all of that, we look to how the devil approaches Jesus. He says to him, If you are the Son of God, that's how he begins the first two temptations. If you are the Son of God, what is going on here? The devil is appealing to Jesus' power and his authority. Are you really going to suffer and serve and save? In a sense, he's saying, The Son of God should not be hungry. If you are the Son of God, you should not be hungry and you should understand that you can live according to making sure that you never become hungry. The Son of God should not have to worry about suffering personal injury or hurt. If you are the Son of God, understand and know all of these things. So the temptation here in the first two is that Jesus would use his power and his authority that does belong to him in a way that conflicts with His mission, His baptism, He is going to the cross, He's going to suffer, He's going to serve, He's going to save, and this temptation puts that to the test. Is He really going to do all this, or will He use His power and His authority in a way that conflicts with His mission? Don't suffer, you're the Son of God. Don't worry about suffering or undergoing harm or injury, you are the Son of God. Jesus answers by appealing to the fuller picture of his nature. So he is the son of God. He is in fact God the son. But in the first temptation he answers by saying man does not live by bread alone. It is true he is God. But he is the God man. And as the God man he lives in submission as relative to his human nature in submission to God. He lives the way that a man should live. And a man lives on the words of God. And a man lives in submission to God. Jesus shows us also that taking stock in reality, suffering is the path to glory. In a fallen world, in a world where death reigns, suffering is the path to glory. The third temptation is so interesting for many reasons, but notice how it's basically a perversion of what Jesus is promised by the Father upon his obedience, glory. Think about Philippians chapter 2, the Son humbles himself, therefore God has highly exalted him. Or in the book of Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He is glorified in light of his obedience and in light of Redemption, But here the devil offers it to Jesus straight away. I will give you glory right now and you don't have to suffer for it. No time to wait. This third temptation seems to boil down to a challenge between God's way of things and the devil's way of things. And this can hold for many aspects of our lives as we think about the way all of this works. The, de- you, the devil and his earthly Fading kingdom and glory can give temporary pleasure and can do so right now. We see how that's a parallel to our own life and the call upon our own lives. The earthly fading kingdom and glory of the devil, the one who is called the prince of the power of the air, the one about whom it says in 1 John, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He has an authority and he has a kingdom. It is perverse and it is temporary, it is fading. And it gives temporary pleasure, but, and we can experience that right now, especially if we feel like we want to reject suffering. That's the devil's way of things, but God's way of things takes stock in the fallen world. It takes stock in death. We cannot get to the blessedness of eternal life without first suffering. And That is especially true for Jesus. For Jesus is the one who embraces the role of savior. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So whichever path Jesus chooses, whichever path we choose, entails the worship of the one who gives these things. The false worship of Satan brings a false kingdom and a false hope. You worship the God of the world which you seek. Do you seek the world that is below? Do you seek the fading kingdom of the devil and its temporary pleasures and its temporary glory? You will worship him and his ways. True worship of the true God brings lasting hope in a way that reflects reality. Take a look around you. Can you have eternal happiness in a world such as this? Can you have eternal blessedness in a worldly order where death reigns? Even those who have the best life on this earth, they still face misery and they still die. So Jesus, in his response to all of, this, all of these temptations, he embraces the suffering that he was appointed to. Isaiah chapter 50, I give my back to those who strike. The Savior will have to suffer. I give my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He's filled with an eternal perspective, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. An eternal perspective allows us to embrace suffering, and it allows us to interpret our circumstances in light of what God gives to us eternally. So the devil quotes Psalm 91, you will not strike your foot against a stone, and you could probably read Psalm 91... And if you didn't have an eternal perspective to see the way that God's promises are working together, you could say, well, God is not really being true to his word. Psalm 91 says you won't suffer hurt. You will always be protected. He will always keep you safe. And in a world where sin and death and the curse reign, oftentimes we don't feel safe. Oftentimes we don't feel protected. We don't feel healthy. And we aren't such we interpret it in light of eternity and that's what Jesus does and what allows him to embrace suffering he embraced suffering for you he did so because it was the only way to redeem and that leads us to our second point Jesus was victorious over temptation for us he embraced suffering for you he was victorious over temptation for us the way that these temptations unfold show us very clearly Christ is the second Adam. Right as he's commissioned into his ministry, the devil comes to put him to the test. The same way that we read happens in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Adam's day of judgment and testing comes quickly. We also see Christ is the true Israel. Wandering through the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes where Israel went. He experiences physical hunger and thirst as they did. And then he uses the scriptures that God gave to Israel during their wilderness wanderings. All of Jesus' answers are taken from Deuteronomy 6 through 8 when Israel was in the wilderness. He stands in the shadow of Adam and Israel who both failed the test, who both succumbed to temptation and to the devil... And they did not fulfill the work that is given to them by God. Adam and Israel both show us why we live in a cursed world. It's a world of disobedience. And here's the key for us today. The reason Jesus must embrace suffering. The reason Jesus must come under the curse. Is because it is the only way to save a world full of Adams and Israels. His righteousness. His obedience. His embracing of suffering, makes him the perfect and the only Savior. In a sense, it qualifies him for the cross. Go once again to the third temptation. What was Satan offering Jesus? The kingdoms of the world. It says, in all of their splendor, in all of their glory, a perversion of what Jesus receives from the Father upon his obedience. But what is the glory of the kingdoms of the world Now, the broken, the temporary, the partial glory of the world under the curse. Do we see the difference of the value of the kingdom that Jesus inherits by his obedience, by his blood shed on the cross, by uh, the glory, the eternal glory that the Father gives to him, and the fading splendor of the kingdoms of this world? How divided The world is, how painful the world is. And here's the difference, the biggest difference. In whatever the devil could offer to Jesus, it did not include the bride of Christ. Jesus did not come to inherit this world or this world's order. He came to redeem for himself a bride out of this world and this world's order to enter the new world that he is preparing for us. He did not come to rule over a world ruled by sin and death. And death It's not good enough for Jesus, and it's not fitting. A righteous king, a holy king, will reign over a righteous kingdom and a holy people. If Christ is the king of your life, then that means the more his reign is known and realized, the more sin will be vanquished in your heart. That's what it means for him to reign. Sin continues to be banished and vanquished. You see, it's a crossword journey that he has taken unto himself. It is a suffering journey because otherwise sinners will not be saved. Sinners will not be redeemed. That's something that the devil would never know about. And could not accomplish. Only in Christ and only in his cross can anyone be saved from their sins. And made to share in the eternal glory of which the devil's glory is only a cheap copy. Only in the painful, agonizing, awful suffering can the price be paid. I heard one pastor put it this way. Pastor who's become a friend of mine. Pastor whose life almost tragically was taken from him in recent weeks. And he got back into the pulpit a couple of weeks ago, and he preached like he meant it, and it was very moving for me. And here's what he said. He said, Jesus must go and suffer and die and be raised. He must. Guilt cannot be dealt with unless he pays. He must. Shame cannot be removed unless Christ dies. He must. The curse cannot be lifted unless Christ gives himself. He must. God's justice cannot be satisfied and his holiness defended unless he lays down his life. He must. His mercy cannot shine unless Christ gives himself as a ransom for many. He must. This is what he came to do, to embrace suffering, to be victorious for you, for me, and for us. And it speaks to the glory and the power of the Savior. Listen to how it's a victory of ironies. These are the words of Don Carson. He says, Jesus is hungry, but he feeds others. He grows weary, but he offers rest. He is the King Messiah, but he pays tribute. He's called the devil, but casts out demons. He dies the death of a sinner, but comes to save his people from their sins. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver, but gives his life a ransom for many. He will not turn stones to bread for himself, but gives his own body as the bread of life for his people. He embraced suffering for you. He was victorious over temptation for us. And in Christ, we can embrace suffering and overcome temptation. It all begins, as we say each and every week, it begins with faith, it begins with the gospel, it begins with union with Christ. We must begin all of our endeavors seeking to serve God, body and soul by first being united in fellowship with the Savior. He has won the Spirit for us. And our own effort will be like Israel in the wilderness, will be like Adam in the garden. Even our own blood cannot atone for our own sins. We could give our life to a very courageous cause. But the worth of our blood is such that we could not wash our sins away. And then, So like Jesus, we well, first we must be united to him by faith, and then like Jesus, we must live a spirit-filled life. He was led by the Spirit. The Spirit helped minister to his human nature as he learned obedience, as the scriptures say. The wondrous mystery of the incarnation. We must live a spirit-filled life. We must live a life in which the word of God resounds in our heart. Notice that the way Jesus answers all of these temptations is with the word of God that God had given to his people in the wilderness so as to instruct them in how to live. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it doesn't just resound inwardly, it shapes his life. Proverbs chapter 4 says this, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. The word of God, as it resounds in our heart, creates something, a life that is affected outwardly. And that's why it says in the very next verse, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. How do you have a healthy heart? You must live not by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Proverbs 4 goes on to say, talk about how all of these things mean we can put away crooked speech. We can not swerve to the right or to the left because there is this mutuality. There is this working together of the heart and the outward life. Like Jesus, we are to embrace suffering. Our suffering is not exactly like unto his, but we are called to live the life of Christ. That is a life that is marked by suffering because it takes stock in God's reality. It takes stock in the way things are in a sin-cursed, fallen world where death reigns. How do we get through this world honoring God and seeking his eternal blessedness? We have to, in some sense, embrace suffering. That does not mean we seek it, but we embrace it and accept it. In Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Can we say that if the Son of God suffered, that we do not have to suffer? This is one of the wonders of the gospel. God the Son coming to earth, suffering and dying And it's really summed up best, I find, in worship songs. It's one of those things that we can't fully comprehend, and we we know immediately so that we cannot. And so it makes our hearts resound in worship. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness, and melt mine eyes with tears. But drops of tears can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. If Jesus goes to the cross, so must we. This is the call of discipleship, the call of the gospel. The cross of Christ remains central. The cross of Christ remains life-giving. But our cross provides the contours of our life that we enter into suffering along with Christ that we may know our Savior, that we may love him. So he calls us to take up our cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross is laid upon every Christian, one theologian puts it. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. The most explicit way that all Christians everywhere, every corner of the earth, no matter what their situation is, no matter what kind of persecution they may be facing, to take up our own cross, to embrace suffering, it begins with a life of vanquishing sin. All of us can do that. And all of us can enter into that. Those who live in parts of the world where there is much persecution... And those who live in parts of the world where there is not much outward persecution. What are we called to do? To die to the old man. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. Anyone who says this is easy work has not engaged in it. So Romans 8 says, just before the passage we just read, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ephesians 4, just like Colossians 3, says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We take up our cross. We live a life of vanquishing sin. That is primarily how we do it, to put to death the deeds of the body. And then like Jesus, we can overcome temptation, but only if we abide in him and live in the life that he gives. We're provided a way of escape as we trust in the one who has overcome temptation for us, as we trust in the one who was qualified to go to the cross, to redeem us out of a sin-cursed world. What are the typical temptations that we all will face? Let your fleshly desires lead you. Live according to uh, all the desires you have, let those things determine the path of your life. Become judges of God's providence. And then that second temptation, it seems to be, you know, become sovereign over God's providence and so you become the judge of what God is doing allows you to determine your own path of life. Think that you do not have to deserve, you don't deserve to suffer. You're not called to embrace suffering. Many of the, that encapsulates many of the kinds of temptations the people of God will face for living the life of Christ that he gives to us. We will see the way in which not only are we called to live after the manner of his own victory, but also given the power to do so as we stand in him, because Christ is made alive in us by the power of the Spirit. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So what was the life that he lived, a life of overcoming all of these things? It's by the Gospel it's by his grace. So like Jesus, we can let the God's word resound in our hearts, let it pour forth in our life. And we exercise faith in him as king of our lives, king of the church. And he's king over every temptation. He's the king who searches hearts. And as he rules over us and he draws us into greater obedience, his kingly power is given to us in every frame and movement of our souls. May we be thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this word. And we ask that it would go down into the depth of our hearts and souls. And that you would allow us to live in such a way. To live Christ in the joy of Christ. We're filled with wonder and awe of what he did. And thankfulness for what he gives to us. In his name we pray. Amen.